I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host John has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and GO team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, my friend. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And I have been traveling. I finally made it back to the home base, at least to uh, change clothes before I head off again. How are you doing? And where are you today on this lovely day? It was a beautiful day on the beach today. Sitting around, nice breeze off the water. It was a wonderful (laughs) day. Got my second shot a couple of days ago. So I'm feeling all chipper. And I'm happy to say that I didn't have any reactions. A little bit of stiffness in the arm when they shot me, but that went away after a couple hours. And otherwise, no reactions. So I'm blessed. You know, I have my spies, given the fact that I, I am an investigator. I understand that you're looking at a computer screen that has a picture of crashing waves and you turn the fan on for the breeze and that you're really sitting in two feet of snow up in Boston. (laughs) You can think whatever you want. I I was listening to the waves pounding on the beach this morning. It was wonderful. wonderful. Oh, good. Well, I'm happy you got your first shot. Second. Um, Oh, you got your second. Yeah. Well, they always say that the second one is worse than the first one. Yeah. No, I didn't have hardly any. The arm was sore, and I instead of just letting it hang around and be sore, I just massaged it, you know, up and down, moved it. Yeah. Oftentimes for a couple of hours, and it went away. So I guess that's the key to do 12-ounce curls after you get the shot? Yep, I think that's what... I was doing six ounces because I was using high octane liquid. <laughs> yeah, just just below jet fuel. That's good. Yep. We like it. Little mojitos go a long <laughs> way. Yeah. Well, you know, by the time uh, folks hear this show, it's after the NTSB has conducted their sunshine meeting on the Kobe Bryant accident, the Sikorsky S-76B that crashed in Calabasas, California. You and I both had an opportunity to, to watch the board meeting since it was done virtually on the computer. And they discussed a lot of stuff, collected a lot of information, as they should, since they, they investigated this as a major accident, launching the team. So you had a lot of different NTSB and party subject matter experts. And of course, then they discussed it in their public forum. And you having been one of the the board members, listening to the staff present the findings that they developed through the facts, conditions, and circumstances, and having the opportunity to query the staff about specific subjects, coming up with the findings, and then of course, probable cause and, of course, recommendations. What were your impressions of this board meeting? Well, one of the things that that, uh, popped out quickly was that it seemed like the board members had more information around the edges than what was presented publicly. So I'm anxious to see the full report because they did have a pretty good team out there. They had some some very good people on that team. So I'm hoping that they did capture a lot of the issues, because it seems like there were more issues than what were mentioned in the uh, report and in the, in the uh, findings. So I'm anxious to see what else was in there, because, you know, as 
the industry gets the, the whole report, the blue cover, which isn't all the facts, but the blue cover, there may be enough information in there to do a good analysis for the purposes of training additional new flight crew members to avoid making the same mistakes that the, this guy had made. So I'm hoping that there's enough information in there. Unlike what we see in a lot of the general aviation accidents, where there's only one investigator from the NTSB, maybe assisted by FAA initially, but he has to do all the work. And I really think that the, the general aviation community has been on the, the wrong end of the investigative stick for a long time. Because if you look at what, we, what the NTSB has done in Alaska to try to lower the accident rate in Alaska, and what the FAA has done around the country in trying to train pilots into the mistakes that others have made. And it really hasn't driven down the accident rate in general aviation. It's been very stubbornly stuck where it has been for several years. And I've been thinking now for a while that maybe it's not coming down because the investigations that have been done are not robust enough to get to the root cause of what really happened and we're just working off insufficient data to develop safety programs to try to lower the accident rate. So given the fact that we really haven't had any serious major 121 accidents, some of the talent that is used on those accidents that sit in Washington at the NTSB, maybe the chairman should look at taking some of those people and uh, putting them on some of these GA accidents when they occur, and maybe do a more robust investigation of those accidents and see if we get any different data. And if we do, then that maybe that indicates that we should be doing more across the board. But it's, it's something that I know that I talked about when I was at the board, but never had got any traction with Bernie Loeb and the, and the accident well, investigation well. branch. Well, Greg, I'd like to remind you and all of our listeners that today's show is being brought to you by PAMA, the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, as well as Femco Insurance. And if you have a new airplane or if your insurance is coming due, please give Vempo a call and mention you to listen to Flight Safety Detectives. It'll get you a 5% discount. And I know, Greg, you use Vempco for your airplanes and yeah. And our experience has been pretty good with them. So, uh. yeah, absolutely. And uh, I encourage everybody that's in the market. I've been watching some of the forums on a variety of social media, and it's always interesting where you have a student pilot or a relatively new pilot who's looking to buy an airplane. They're asking on the forums about insurance companies and who's who do you think is the best or whatever. And they don't. <laughs> it's funny because they. A lot of these guys answer, and their answers are the brokers that they're referring these folks to rather than the actual underlying insurance company. And, of course, you're going to go through a broker to get to a lot of these insurance companies, but with a Vemco, you're going directly to them. And that's what I've always liked is the immediacy of being able to talk to the folks at a Vemco direct and giving them what I think are the safety elements of my qualifications and that kind of stuff to see what kind of deal they will give me, not only on, on airplane insurance, but as a CFI, having supplemental insurance. And of course, I rent airplanes, so having renter's insurance. So I really appreciate the one-stop shopping that I get from Avemco. Well, let's, let's hope that our audience, uh, if they need insurance, will give them a call. And Greg, I don't know if you noticed, did you see the report that came out of Indonesia about that 737-500 crash? Yeah. You know, I've been talking about this accident since day one. Of course, again, all the social media forums started lighting up. And of course, everybody's starting to 
is it a max? Is it a max? And it's not a max. It's actually an old airplane. It's a Dash 500 that was operated here in the United States for quite a long time before it found its way into Indonesia. And looking at the data that I was able to get a hold of very early on, it was evident, and I talk about it in my social media posts, about that there being an auto throttle issue because uh, back in the early 2000s, there was uh, an airworthiness directive. I think it started as a service bulletin, but it was really an airworthiness directive. It turned into an AD in January of 2001. Okay. So it was obvious that the issue was big enough, and that was that they were finding that there was thrust lever creep due to the uh, auto throttle computer, and they were getting split thrust. So you could have very large asymmetrical thrust issues that could lead to a loss of control. And I know that you've reviewed that, A.D., John. Didn't it say something that you could get into uncontrolled roll events or something like that, if I remember in the preamble? It did say that. It did say that. If it got away from you, you know, which I read to mean if you're not paying attention, the difference in throttle positions and power could get you into into trouble rather quickly. And I also went back and looked at the history of this airplane as much as I could find. And it seems like Continental got rid of it right about the time when the AD was due. Like I said, it came out in January, I think it was the 8th of 2001, but it had an 18-month window to get things done. So that would bring it to the middle of 2002. And I believe that it was already gone from Continental slash United certificate by then. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. So it's, well, it's it, going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. We just don't have enough information now to carry that yeah. any further. Well, you know, and, and the interesting thing is, is that there's a quite a few things about this. One, there's been an update recently by the government over there with regard to some of the flight data recorder data. Of course, as of the time of this podcast, they still haven't found the cockpit voice recorder, which, given stuff that you and I know about the Max, talked about the Max, and the fact that you know we are always skeptical of things, especially in that part of the world, you know, I think of two scenarios. Okay, yeah, the, the airplane hit very hard, and yes, the box definitely came apart because they saw that with the flight data recorder and yes the the module could be buried in all the muck and silt on the bottom of the of the area where the airplane crashed which makes it in, impossible to find because it doesn't have any ping or anything on it so okay that's the the scenario that okay i can accept that and then there's always the scenario that hmm, maybe they don't want to find it because it could indict the crew for not being receptive to what was going on in the airplane, not being plugged in, the level of complacency, and a variety of things. Because the way the data is being presented from the flight data recorder and the timeline that's been built, it's evident that the, the crew didn't recognize what was going on. And when the autopilot finally gave up and the airplane immediately went into a roll, some of the reactions, as documented on the flight data recorder, do not support the crew taking, one, timely action, two, the necessary action to recover from an unusual attitude. And the question is, why not? They're a professionally trained crew. They're professional pilots. And why weren't they plugged in to recognize what was going on? You would think that if you got one thrust lever at idle and the other basically at takeoff power or a high power setting, you'd have a big yaw event going on. Wouldn't that get your attention? I know the autopilot's going to trim a lot of that out, but at, at some point, the autopilot runs out of the ability to control that asymmetrical situation. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the additional data as it becomes available. And getting back to the Kobe Bryant NTSB sunshine hearing, you know, there were a number of 
there was quite a bit of discussion. It went on for four hours. And while a lot of it was obvious, they were talking about the pilot's pre-flight planning and pre-flight weather evaluation and things like that. Okay, that's a given. And given the fact that this is a charter operator operating not at the highest levels because 121 is considered to be the highest levels, but 135 is, is a close second, you'd expect this pilot to have evaluated the weather, know what he was getting himself into as he was trying to go to destination. It wasn't a secret that weather had been, you know, stagnant in that in that particular area. So it's not like it's it's a weather event that he just flew up upon or it surprised him. He knew exactly, especially when they put him in a hold. He got an airport that is pulling in IFR traffic. So the board addressed that. And again, like you said, John, we don't have the final report. All we heard was the sound bites and the, and the snippets in this public forum that the board talked about. And then they put out a uh, an abstract. And, and so the pre-flight planning and risk management, okay, I understand that. And then they talk about the flight's entry into instrument meteorological conditions and the pilot's inadequate adverse weather avoidance. And this is quoted out of their abstract. At the time the pilot took action to initiate a climb, the helicopter had already begun to penetrate clouds. Although the pilot's adverse weather avoidance training emphasized avoiding entry into IMC by slowing the helicopter and maneuvering or landing, there was no evidence that he attempted to do so. And then they roll right into the pilot getting spatial disorientation. And then they talk about some of the influences that the pilot's decision may have been predicated on because of who he was flying, self-induced pressure, things like that. What I don't see, what I didn't hear them talk about, which I believe should, and and again, I haven't seen the final report, maybe they talk about it, but for a very long time, John, we have talked about it with big airplanes, little airplanes, helicopters, doesn't matter. We've talked about it in aviation. We've even talked about it in the maintenance hangar, and that is situational awareness. And situational awareness is a big deal. Yes, the pilot may have suffered the effects of a spatial disorientation type event because he put the aircraft into a variety of different G-loaded attitudes. He's pulling up, he's turning, he's pushing, whatever. That's fine. I understand all of that. But we train from day one as a student pilot about situational awareness. And I look at it today, and we have uh, a friend of our show on with us today because we're going to be talking about some other things. Jason McCassick, he is one of the flight safety detectives that is a friend of our show. And Jason and I do a lot of work together. We're investigating a lot of events right now, accidents and incidents. And yes, spatial disorientation is one thing, but it's all about situational awareness, understanding where you are in relationship to obstructions, to terrain, to the flight conditions. And and, and in this particular instance, it would be clouds or lowering environmental conditions, knowing exactly what's going on, not only within the aircraft, but outside the aircraft. And situational awareness, of course, is substantially different than spatial disorientation. And where they talk about the, the pilot getting into IMC, they talk about it in a generic way, the flight's entry into instrument meteorological conditions. Now, you've been around the board long enough, John, and Jason, you worked for the FAA and you've investigated and you and I are investigating some of these types of events where a lot of times we talk about the fact that the pilot entered instrument meteorological conditions inadvertently, VFR into IMC, and it's typically inadvertently. Oh, the pilot didn't mean to do that. You can definitely make a case in this accident that this pilot, this IMC encounter was not inadvertent. It was probably intentional. The fact is he saw what he was flying himself into. He could see the conditions deteriorating. He knew he was going into an area of high terrain and did not take corrective action. And when we talk about situational awareness, as a student pilot, we're always talking about if you get into an IMC, and in the 
pilot's case, an inadvertent IMC or a private pilot no instrument rating, inadvertent IMC encounter, the best thing for you to do in an airplane is to retreat, turn around. Why? Because you know what the conditions are behind you because you just came from them. In a helicopter, you have the ability to slow down and even come to a stop, go into a hover, reverse course, retreat, do whatever. That's all about situational awareness. It's one thing to talk, yeah, they got into the clouds and, and they do mention you know, what the procedure should have been followed by the pilot. But situational awareness is important because when we talk about tracking data, John, like you had talked about, you know, with do we have good information going into a database? If I want to know how many pilots, you know, lost some level of situational awareness that resulted in a sequence of events that resulted in either an accident or incident, I won't be able to search this accident unless they do talk about situational awareness in the body of the report. I don't see it in the findings, and I sure don't see it in the probable cause. And I think that key phrases like that and key discussions are what we all look for in trying to look for the trends, as you were talking about in general aviation. It's one thing to get into the, into the weather, even with instrument-rated pilots, but they lose situational awareness because their world starts to collapse because they get focused on something. And Jason, you I mean, working for the FAA, you know, you've been around it, you've seen it, you've investigated it. How critical do you think, you know, situational awareness is as a discussion in trying to put together a sequence of events when you have a, an event like this? Because I think you watched part of the uh, board meeting as well. Absolutely. It's absolutely critical. Situational awareness is very critical, the entire sequence of events. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I think that I hope that the board has talked about it um, in the body of the report. Uh, I'm disappointed that I didn't see it. I know they focused on SMS and and things like that. And, and they talk about the benefits of simulation. Now, the one thing, the NTSB, I'm sure, has their characterizations of you and me, John, because we've been beating them up on a lot of shows for not doing their job, as we think they should be doing it. And Jason and I are seeing it again firsthand because we've both been out on the road together working a number of accidents and incidents where the board hasn't shown up. They aren't getting involved. And the involvement they do have is from afar. And they're not getting the information that Jason and I are being able to get. But the point being is that when you look at these findings and the recommendations that are coming out, could there be more or better recommendations if more information had been developed? Because some of these are, are kind of generic. But the bigger thing that I found, and again, I got to talk about it in an entertaining way. I couldn't believe that they spent an hour and 15 minutes. These five board members and staff spent an hour and 15 minutes debating the word likely versus possible. You know, all you have to do is look in the dictionary. You know, I mean, likely is defined as having a high probability of occurring or being true versus possible which means, yeah, it could happen and could become true, but there's nothing to support it. And I was just kind of astonished because the board has used the word likely, most probably, most likely in all of its years of writing reports. John, I mean, <laughs> what's your take on it? You had five board members debating a word. We did a debate word sometimes, but not to that extent. Not to that extent. Yeah. Now they have report writers. I mean... Towards yeah, they got her involved. <laughs> right. Towards the end of my time at the board, we finally had a report writer who was an attorney who helped edit a lot of the reports, but she was one that had a lot of experience. She worked at the FAA before the NTSB, so she had been around quite a while. She retired, so that'll tell you how long she'd been around. 
uh, so she understood the process. I, I don't believe that's the case any longer, so we may have some growing pains in that department trying to get the reports and trying to get people up to speed with all these terms. It's typically not easy for somebody from the outside to come in and understand this term. It's not just somebody that works in the maintenance department to understand the maintenance terms. You've got to understand maintenance, engineering, dispatch, the flight crew, operations. I mean, the list almost goes to 20 or 30 items. So it's not easy for a report writer to pull all those together. Yeah. When you're writing under pressure, too, it's easy to uh, miss some of that. So you've got to cut them a little slack on that, but let's hope the report <laughs> has enough material in it that those people that want to use that report in research can take that out. And that's always been a, an issue is the details in the report because it's a boil down of the factual information. I can remember on TWA 800, people would say, well, the port report doesn't say anything about that. Well, you're looking at the blue cover report that might have 300 pages in it, probably a lot less. In the docket for TW800, there was over 50,000 pages. So yeah. it's impossible to boil all of that down into a quarter of an inch or, or at most three-eighths of an inch thick document. So a lot of things get left behind. But real yeah. researchers will go beyond that blue cover report and go into the into the docket. Yeah, I, you know, on the point, yeah, I'm, I'm being kind of critical just because they spend so much time on that word likely. But likely has been used by the NTSB for a very long time. So they should have already known what the intent of the use of that word was. And, of course, it was related to a phrase that they were talking about both in a finding and the probable cause of contributing to the accident was the pilot's likely self-induced pressure. And they talked at nauseum about the fact that this pilot was trying to accomplish the mission. You and I and Jason have talked about it at nauseum on this show and in private and everything else that, look, <laughs> you know what? Anytime a pilot does something, there's usually self-induced pressure, whether it's conscious or unconscious. The fact is, is that if I decide to try and take off into zero, zero weather, there is self-induced pressure. I have a reason for me trying to take off into that lousy weather. Do I know better? Absolutely. But something's driving me. So it's obvious I have some type of self-induced pressure, whether it's to accomplish the mission, to you know go to a meeting or, or whatever, or I have an overconfidence in my own personal skills, abilities, and knowledge and that of the airplane and think that I can get away with it and I can do it safely. So it was just interesting that the likely self-induced pressure of this pilot, it's obvious that he put a lot of self-induced pressure on himself to try and do something with the aircraft in obviously deteriorating weather conditions, especially as soon as he turned up into that mountainous area. I mean, if people... In the general area, could see that the mountaintops, the hilltops were obscured. He sure as hell had to see it. It had to be obvious. And for him to think he's going to blast into it, and then when he got into it, think that he's going to pull collective and pop up through it. It was still IMC, you know, 2,000 feet MSL that he was going to try and pop up into. So, you know, I like to have very complete discussions and, and things like that. And I look forward to the report. Because I hope there's a lot of good stuff in there because we all try to use the NTSB final reports as teaching tools for students or accomplished pilots, aviators, mechanics, or, uh, training. At the, it doesn't matter. We try to use that information. So hopefully there are some very good discussions in there that we can point to to use all the work that, uh, that has been done in this investigation and others. Um, to enhance aviation safety through various means. Yes, I hope that I hope they capture it. They had a good team on scene. There's no question about that. They had a lot of experience there, so let's hope that they they did capture all of that in the in the raw data. And yeah. of course we'll never be able to know what was going through his mind. And it's about time we started pushing. Here we go again, still saying like I'm at the NTSB. Yeah. It's time that the NTSB really bear down on new construction of, of airplanes having both a flight data recorder and a voice recorder. 
There's no excuse on new construction of airplanes that that should not be. You can make a lot of arguments about retrofitting and the cost of retrofitting and yada, 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 but they sh that we should put a maximum amount of pressure on new constructed airplanes need to have a recorder, especially today. So many of them are so small and lightweight. It is just, it really is a disgrace to the industry that we haven't done a better job with recorders. Low speed ailerons, normal and auto. Rudder travel pitch field. Nine. Nav exterior lights. Nine. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Crank it aboard. Fire handles. Oh. Seat belt no smoke. Nine. You brought up a subject that we weren't going to talk about today because uh, this is that's the good thing about this show. It's not scripted. You just brought up something that Jason and I have been working on for a very long time because this is the data that we are dependent upon, and we're getting it off the poor man's flight data recorder, if you will, on a lot of general aviation aircraft, and that is, of course, new generation avionics. We are working on a number of events right now where the Garmin G3000 is giving us a lot of data as a flight data recorder would give you. And it's there. It's mounted in the panel. It's monitoring a variety of different things that the aircraft is doing. And Jason and I are using it for accident reconstruction. And we're fortunate that the aircraft that we're pulling this data off of, yes, they were they were beat up pretty good, but the uh, cards that we have the data captured on survived, and we've developed or at least determined to extract other data from various parts of these instruments. But it doesn't take anything elaborate, and and Jason, jump in here, but it doesn't it doesn't take anything elaborate. We put in a crash we put in a crash hardened memory chip. So, you know, you, when you recover the avionics, even if it's burned, there's this little box that's crash hardened. And you know that in this little box is a solid state chip that has recorded whatever, how many, however many parameters or hours of flying. You just pull it off the circuit board, plug and play it and play it back. Jason, I mean, you know, you and I, <laughs> you've been dissecting the data that we're pulling off these systems. It's just fantastic. The stuff that we're getting off, you know, and, and as the avionics become newer and newer and they're upgrading and adding more functionality to them and they're sensing more things and more systems are coming online, there's just more and more parameters. And so 15 years ago, we would get on some of the, the, the units, we could get, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 parameters. And then 10 years ago, we could get 60 parameters. Five years ago, we get 100. And now we get 195. So as the system's improve and the computer systems evolve and the integration evolves there's this that much more data that's being recorded and the fidelity of it is fantastic you can change it at different rates that you want but a lot of the data you and i are looking at is once a second it's fantastic from a reconstruction standpoint that i could have 196 parameters with an aircraft per second i could pull off different segments of flights i can put it in the air i can make it on landing i can do a departure and i can i can drag and drop it i can it's as simple as pulling it into to uh, google earth and being able to look at it as a flight too just as a basic example not even a true simulation where we're trying to look at all the other factors so the data that we're getting now is is really good and it's only going to get better and i i just think that the industry and the faa of course and the avionics manufacturers, because the avionics manufacturers, because now that I'm on, on the other side of the fence now and I see the litigations and all that, that kind of stuff, while the board uses the information for accident investigation and aviation safety enhancement, litigation is always the next step because that data is then used to either prove a case or not prove a case, determine whether or not safety has been compromised and things like that. And I just think that if we have that ability, because of the levels of sophistication of general aviation aircraft, even this S-76, the fact that, it, yeah, it was an old generation airplane or helicopter, but we're seeing a lot of old airplanes and helicopters with new generation avionics installed to give us the performance, the aircraft performance that we're looking for to try and put together a reasonable and logical 
thorough and methodical sequence of events as to what happened. And it's a great electronic witness. And I think that the industry should embrace it rather than seeing it more as a tool of Big Brother or somebody watching because we find it very valuable. You, you've been around long enough, John. I mean, hell, dirt's older than you, but not by much. <laughs> where when they, put, when they put cockpit voice recorders on the airplane, I mean, there was a huge pushback. You know, everybody, oh, Big Brother's listening to us. Big Brother's listening to us. Now, a CBR and an FDR are the most valuable tools we have working big aircraft accidents. Can you imagine some of the recent accidents? 737 MAX accidents or this latest 737-500 accident where we don't have any black box info. We don't have an FDR. We don't have a CVR. What kind of probable cause, what kind of findings do you think, what kind of storyline do you think would be put together if we didn't have that data? Please, I've, you know, I started this business with no voice recorder and five scribe lines on a piece of aluminum foil for a flight data recorder. And over the years, we've upgraded all of it. Now, today's recorders have thousands of parameters on them for the flight data recorder. And now we're looking at incorporating the voice recorder into the same box as the flight data recorder. So that will eliminate chasing down two boxes. And we're also talking about uploading and downloading the data off the recorders. So that'll help even further. And the upgrade to the flight data recorders that occurred after the, uh, oh, like, geez, I can't remember which accident now really drove it. I had it and I lost it. But anyway, uh, they were all up in arms. The ATA said it was going to cost a half a million dollars per airplane to upgrade the recorders. And then Southwest did their first one and it cost 80-something thousand dollars. And it came down, tumbling down from there. So, yeah. you know, sometimes the, the industry and people just resist beyond resistance instead of taking a logical approach. In the early 90s, I worked on the Class D cargo compartments, the belly bins on airplanes for fires. When I started in this business, we had a, a warning system if, on the, all the airplanes if there was a fire in the belly. And there were these fragile temperature bulbs that hung down from the ceiling. And they were constantly being broken by the baggage guys or by the f freight bouncing around inside the belly. And the industry convinced the FAA to take it out. Then they took it out of all the airplanes. And technology got better, and it was pretty simple. And when we wanted to put it back in in the 90s, put it back in, the industry just hue and cry, no way, no way, no way, too much money, so on and so on. And then along came ValueJet, and I know you know this well because that was one of your accidents. ValueJet came along in the Everglades, fire in the, in the forward compartment, and on, all of a sudden we had to put it in. The industry should have responded themselves and said, now the technology's improved. On the new airplanes, we will start to install it. But no, they tried to resist, 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 and ended up they had to do it anyway. So it's, yeah. it's crazy. The dynamics around improving anything is just unbelievable, including government, including getting the NTSB to improve on itself. We spent a lot of our dollars, your money, my money, and everybody else's money, on the RAND report for the NTSB. And I know we just talked about this a short time ago. But they did a very, very thorough job of looking at the NTSB from top to bottom and made a whole series of recommendations, none of which were ever implemented. That wasn't even talked about after the report was published. It's just out there and nothing has been done about it. It's now 10 years yeah. old or more. More. No, it's it's, now, yeah, it's 20. Yeah. We looked at it just recently. There's a lot of things in there that should be implemented even today without yeah. doing an additional study. But everybody resists change. It seems to be human nature, whether it's on your individuals, the bureaucracy, the manufacturers, the operators, everybody resists change. So the FAA's yeah. got a yeoman job to do in trying to get some of this uh, changes accomplished.
Well, one of the things that we talked about on past shows is the Piper PA-28 and PA-32 series airplanes with the wing issues. And we had Jason on to talk about those wing issues. There were service bulletins issued at the time we were talking, and there was a presumptive airworthiness directive that was going to be issued regarding uh, wing uh, attach bolt hole cracking. And Jason and I have been following all of these exploits with the, with the wing issues on the PA-28s and 32s. And one of the reasons that we wanted Jason back on the show today was you and I have been monitoring these forums, Jason. It's obvious that there is some confusion because people are talking about doing the corrosion service bulletin and thinking that they're good to go with this AD or the other corrosion service bulletin. And so if you could just give us a synoptic, because there are three distinct things that owners slash pilots of these aircraft need to know about, two service bulletins and an airworthiness directive. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for having me back again. Yeah. So I've been getting a lot of questions, too, and I get a lot of calls from, you know, former people that I knew all across the country and flight schools at Hidden, people that have heard your show and people contacted me, asked the same questions. There still is a lot of confusion. So before the Air Weather Directive came out, which goes into effect here in another week or so, I believe, I think it goes into effect on February 16th is the effectivity date for the wing spar bolt hole inspection. There's been a lot of confusion. And, and in the process of me doing, inspecting a lot of aircraft and looking at a lot of wings uh, for that particular AD, which is now getting ready to come out, I noticed some other issues with other wings and people have called me. So there's three distinct things for people to look at with the wings. Now, everybody's going to have to end up and review the air witness directive and determine whether or not they have the right factored hour service time and if, if they're going to do it or how they're going to do it. So everybody's going to have to make a decision with their AMP mechanics about doing the air witness directive because it's out and it's effective and they're going to have to do it. That particular air witness directive is a specific inspection with two bolt holes in the lower portion of the wing spars, the outer bolt holes on the wing spars, left and right wing. So that's a very you know, specific style of inspection. The other things that we're talking about, the other two bulletins that have come out that I found on quite a few airplanes that I've seen myself. And I believe last time we talked about it, we actually had some pictures and you guys posted some stuff uh, with some yeah. videos that showed the pictures. Yeah. I just so happened to be investigating a bolt hole issue for the upcoming AD when all this corrosion stuff popped out at the same time. So there's two distinct service bulletins to talk with your mechanic to do too. Now, Piper considers these mandatory in nature. So they, they, they consider them mandatory, but again, there's, there's service literature information, there's service bulletins. So the first one is that uh, they need to do is going to be 1244C is the latest revision for that one. And that's an inspection that you're going to do on the back of the wing. So the rear spar attached point. So on the back of the wing on the spar, there's a, a plate back there, a steel plate, and that plate's riveted to the back of the spar, and then it goes into the fuselage and it bolts into the inside of the fuselage. So there's inspection back there to, to look for you know, corrosion, evidence of corrosion, check the rivets, and then that particular one, also you check the torque. You have to check the torque of the bolt. So that, that service bulletin has you look for corrosion, and it has you check the torque of the bolt. The second service bulletin is, is different. This is a corrosion bulletin that has you check the inside of the wings from the spar outboard. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to open up some aircraft already have inspection panels forward of the spar, left and right wing, that gets you up into the area in front of the spar. And so you have to gain access. However, you're going to gain access. Again, you have to talk with your mechanic. The mechanic's going to have to gain you're going to have to clean the area out because, you know, sometimes people haven't been in there a long time and they haven't inspected those things. You have to uh, clean the area and clean the spar, look for any type of surface corrosion or any sort of peeling, or maybe there's paint got in there or there's ACF 50 built up anti-corrosion inhibitor put on or something. So anyway, you have to clean the areas. And then from the route where the spar attaches, outboard past the fuel tank and then forward of the spar, you want to check the aft too, you know, as much as you can. You want to check all around the surfaces and everywhere for any sort of surface corrosion. And there's a series of limitations in there for if you find corrosion and cleaning it and taking the dimensions and then having to do a repair. So 
there's really three different things when you do your next annual inspection or if you're in the process of doing the service bulletins. Now, there's actually two service bulletins in an air weatherness directive that you can kind of accomplish all at the same time. There seems to be, like you and I talk, I, I've gotten telephone calls. People are really confused about, hey, I'm doing this this far bolt thing. Am I looking for corrosion? If you know, I'm doing the corrosion, do I do the, the bolt holes? But I'm not sure. And recently, you know, we've been doing a, uh, I've been doing a large scale investigation into into the bolt hole with the spar issue. You know, I'm just now waiting on some results. We're getting ready to get some test results, but with traversing the country and doing inspections and looking at wings, the original proposed air witness directed had a, had a much broader range of aircraft in it. And then after a lot of negotiation and, and engineering went on, there were some factored limits and some stresses that were put into that. And then some aircraft were then removed from the list. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm in the process right now of, I've already set up and I'm, I'm waiting to get the inspection done. It appears that we're, we found an aircraft that's outside of the model. So it's not covered under the air weatherness directive under the models it's outside of that it was it was removed but it appears like it does have a crack in the spar so we're in the process of uh, getting that inspected now from a, from an appropriate NDT company that we've been using and trying to go out and do some follow-up inspections on that. And and in the event that they do find that, you know, we'll be down there to, to pull the wing off again. We're going to do the same type of process that previous investigations have followed. We're going to remove the wing, do the inspection again, and, and, and do all that kind of stuff. So it looks as though we may have, a, we may have one there, but uh, we'll do follow-up, and we'll have to follow up on a future show about that. Yeah. Well, I just think that in the best interest of the DA2832 community, you know, yes, the inspection ranges from 500 bucks to I think 1500 bucks or whatever. But it's money well spent for the peace of mind that you got a spar, pardon the pun, that's solid. That is, you don't have to worry about it. You can then set yourself a baseline for using the factored hours and when your next inspection schedule will come about rather than trying to do the factored now the factored hours now and going well should i or shouldn't i do i or don't i especially you know these airplanes have been around a while they've been through multiple owners and unless you've had it since day one and you really know the history that it hasn't been used for doing crash and dashes in training and things like that it's worth the peace of mind to spend that money as an aircraft owner that way you've established the baseline you know you're starting with a good aircraft and moving forward given the attention that is being drawn to this particular issue or these issues because it's both a corrosion and a cracking issue absolutely and so you know kind of one of the things that i just wanted to touch on a little bit too that you and i uh you know i, I mentioned before to you I, that i'm monitoring closely i'm in a lot of safety forums and a lot of social media forums that you we're, we're tracking we're tracking a lot of events a lot of discussions having a lot of discussions with people gathering information and things and there's there's a lot of conversation that goes on and there's things that just pop up that you know you can't believe that you're reading or you know does people really think that they should do this and so then i've contacted individuals and we've had other conversations, but like I was telling you, uh, I got a call from one specific uh, airplane that I went to take a look at, and the NDT company came out, and when they were doing the inspection, they decided to go ahead and pull both wings off. Great. We're going to do all the bolt holes. Well, in the process of doing the inspection with the NDT company, the NDT company got in with the bolt hole fire, and there was corrosion inside of the hole, and they were having kind of a problem with the, with the probe with corrosion and stuff. So the mechanic shop said, oh, well, I'll take care of that. So they went ahead and just grabbed some good old Scotch-Brite, got themselves out a little powder pin, put it on the end of a drill, and they cleaned all the holes. Perfectly clean, just like you can't believe. Well, at the same time of them cleaning out the corrosion out of the holes, they enlarged the holes. So there's nothing that you can do after that. You've changed the tolerance, you've created a problem, and it just so happens after they cleaned all the holes, after all of that big mistake and messing with the material and everything and wiping everything on the inside, Four of those holes, four of the holes in the spars in different spots had different signatures that appeared to be cracks as well. But then again, the, the evidence has altered and been changed due to the cleaning procedure. You know, another instance that I talked to you about is I, I found somebody that had come up with a, a different alternate means of compliance that they thought they had a problem. So they enlarged the holes and that and that they had applied to the FAA to use bushings that they were going to put in there with different size bolts. And there's this very long social media discussion about how they went through this whole process of basically re-engineering the, 
the bolt holes and that they were submitting to their local FISDO office to get a field approval for this sort of alternate means of compliance. Now, I've tried to make contact with with all these people that, that are talking about these kinds of things, and you can't do that. That's that's not the way to go. This isn't, first of all, you shouldn't be contacting the FAA if you're going to do that. You should be contacting the manufacturer. But, you know, just to make sure that these people understand that that's not really the way to go and the route to be able to do that. Good morning, John on the ground. Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Hey, 920, runway 248, taxi. And you've talked about this with me, especially the guys who are enlarging the hole and trying to put a bushing in there. You're eating away at engineered material. This, I mean, Piper's de- determined what size bolts, how many bolts need to go in there. Now you start taking, you know, chewing off material, you know, that's less material that you have now. And now you stick a bushing in there, which is going to put some sort of stress in that hole to begin with. I mean, again, you can't just fabricate your own fix and especially you know if somebody actually does the engineering like an faa or piper and they go you can't do that well don't i mean isn't that a fitting isn't that fitting the replacement fittings steel so the plates in the very back the attached points are but not the spar and the spar box so what these what these gentlemen were talking about doing was enlarging the holes in the spar and then putting a bushing in and then going back with the original close tolerance bolts and I've tried to make, I've tried on a dozen occasions to make contact with this large group of people in this discussion to no avail. I, I haven't been able to get a hold of the guy that actually said that he did this. But there's a lot of other people discussing it, and, and that in and of itself is dangerous. So, yeah. you know, people need to take what's written. They need to take the material that's there. They, you know, if, it, if they find a problem, there's a telephone numbers, there's people to contact. You know, you need to be able to follow the correct procedure to do that. Just don't go out thinking that you're going to be an engineer today and that you're going to create your own alternate means of compliance with the bulletin. Do it and then go to the FAA and go, hey, look, I've done this. This is this is what I did. Is this okay? Well, no, it's not going to be okay. Wow. Especially to a spa. I mean, exactly. You make the whole larger. You have materially compromised the strength of the spa. And now that... The uh, engineering folks have to do their analysis to see that you haven't weakened it to the point where it's going to fail on its own because that bushing is going to add no strength to the spar whatsoever. Absolutely. And if, and if anybody has any questions, I think you guys posted them before. The best place for anybody, if they just want to watch a short, really good description video of exactly what we're talking about, the exact area with pictures and diagrams, there's a company called Airframe Components. They're on YouTube. You put in any one of the service bulletins, you put in the airworthiness directive. If you want to see the exactly how they're doing the eddy current inspection, you want to see it on the scope and how they're doing it. All. They have some really short videos on there. You know, they range anywhere from four minutes to 12 minutes. And, and, and he perfectly describes the process of complying with either the bulletin or the AD and how to go about doing that. Jason, do you have those service bulletins there so we can give them to people? Because a lot of people are interested, even though they don't have the airplane. Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, I'll I'll make sure that I get you guys a copy so you can have them. So the first one that we were talking about, about the fittings on the rear of the wing, that's going to be service bulletin 1244C. The the service bulletin to talk about the corrosion on the spar and in, in the forward area of the spar all the way out to the fuel tank, that's going to be service bulletin 1304A. And then, of course, the airworthiness directive, which goes effective next week, that's going to be 20 It's going to be 2020-26-16. They change in a numbering Good. system. Yeah, the, this particular one is is under. Yeah, it's going to be eighty twenty twenty dash twenty six dash sixteen. That's what they have it labeled as. Yeah. Okay, so that makes it easy for anybody that wants to go. Any of our listeners who don't have the airplane that want to see what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll make I'll make available. I'll send the links to you. I'll send the links to both of you, and then you guys you can. It's easy. You can post them right up. Anybody can just click right on the link and then just go right there and read them and print them out. All right. Perfect. Thank you, Jace. Really appreciate it. Well, John, I know that, uh, you know, the time has flown by again. We start getting into these subjects and next thing you know, we're bumping up against uh, an hour. So I just want to say thanks to uh, our fellow flight safety detective, Jason McCassick. Thanks for all the uh, the input, especially about the wing spars, because that, I think, will continue to be an issue 
for some little while. So we really appreciate that. And John, I know that you and I both appreciate our listeners because we've gotten some good feedback. We got a number of emails this past week that we're trying to get to to answer, but a couple of great suggestions for shows and that kind of stuff. So we want to thank uh, the folks that you know are continually. We've got a bunch of new listeners. That was the good thing, as I saw the majority of the emails we got this week. Is we had hey, awful, I found your, You know, there was an awful lot of email traffic this week. Uh, it was yeah. up substantially. And a lot of them said, hey, I just found your show, ran across your show, heard about your show. One said, pardon the pun, I ran across your show by accident. So, <laughs> but uh, we don't care how you, you hear about us. We're, we're happy that you're listening to us. And you can always get in touch with us to talk about the good, the bad, the ugly of the show. Give us suggestions, ask questions, uh, give us your, your input. We always appreciate that. You can contact us via our email at flightsafetydetectives with an S at gmail.com. And like I said, John and I try to get back and, and answer these emails, but we do appreciate the communication that it, uh, it gives us a, a little bit of confidence that, uh, you know, somebody's listening to the show. So we, we greatly appreciate, we greatly appreciate that. And then of course, John, we want to thank our sponsors, PAMA and Avemco Insurance. Avemco is the primary sponsor of this show. So if you are in the need for any kind of aircraft insurance or renter's insurance, anything with any aviation-related insurance needs, definitely get in contact with uh, with Avemco Insurance. You can either do it by way of their uh, website. And you have the website, right, John? Yeah, Avemco.com. It's pretty easy. Yep, and the 800 number? Yeah, 888-879-0389. Again, 888-879-0389. Perfect. you got an airplane to insure pretty soon yourself. Yep. So they're going to be getting a phone call from me here shortly. So I know that uh, you're living in the lap of luxury down and wherever you are, sitting on a beach, listening to the waves and watching uh, scenery down there, those palm trees swaying. So I hope that uh, you're enjoying yourself. I hope you stay COVID safe. And as I always do, my friend, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, to all of our listeners, please stay safe in your personal life. Wear the masks. Avoid the crowds. Don't go inside in restaurants. I mean, it's been on every TV station, every radio station. You've got to take precautions. And I can tell you that there's a lot of people in Florida that have taken no precautions whatsoever. Just uh, scary what I see sometimes with people with no masks. And that's fact one, that's one of the reasons why I like to sit on the beach here, because the breeze is coming off the water usually. If, so if there's anything around me, behind me, it's going the other way. So I keep Well, my... that's funny you say that, because J Jason and I were just in Florida we didn't get to go sit in the ocean breeze and have all the bad stuff fly around us in front of us <laughs> because we were working, John. You're out there lounging. We were working. Yep, well. Having to deal with all that bad air. That's, that's life, isn't it? <laughs> that's life. So please, everybody out there, stay safe. Take the necessary precautions. And if you do fly, pay attention do a very thorough pre-flight. And I've been doing some work on pre-flights, and we're going to do a show dealing with pre-flights in the not-too-distant future. What you should look for. What are the good precautions one should take? Because it's really not just walking around the airplane. You're supposed to use all your senses. That means your eyes, your ears, your nose, all right, your hands for tactile signals. You know, when you're moving the controls, flight controls up and down, you're supposed to be feeling for roughness in the bearings and so on. So we're going to have a very detailed program about what to look for and how to do a good pre-flight. But if, in the meantime, if you're going flying, please do a very thorough pre-flight and make sure you take the, the precautions when you take off. I just had a, a story from somebody that routinely was taken off from the Northeast in the chilly weather and not warming his engine up because he thought he got more power out of it. I don't know where that came from. But in any event, 
he ultimately had an engine problem. Thank God it wasn't in flight. He didn't have a failure in flight. It occurred on the ground. And so we're, we're going we're gonna to start talking about those on what pilots do consciously or unconsciously that make themselves unsafe. But please pay attention to what you're doing out there. Many of us are rusty. You haven't flown in a while because of the virus. That has an effect on how you fly. So please pay attention to all of that. And with that, I'll say, please fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.